Would you stand with me as we read? So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in the scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The word of the Lord. Good morning. We're seeking to learn what it means to follow Jesus from a man who, uh, who followed Jesus. And who then comes later in life to explain to the churches, to instruct them on what it means to follow Jesus. So when Jesus bids all of us to follow after him, what does that mean for us today? Well, in the first week of examining uh, Peter's letter to the churches, we saw that he wrote to the churches telling them that salvation has made them both elect and exiles, chosen by God and set apart from the rest of the world for God's purposes. We saw uh, that this choosing was done according to the foreknowledge of God, the sanctification of the Spirit, and four or two, obedience unto Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood. It is a decision that has been made within the Trinity of itself and is intended for our obedience. And then Peter went on to talk about how, and we saw last week, how we're called, all of this salvation has been done, uh, that we would be made holy, set apart as God is holy. And what Peter takes up today, or what we engage today out of Peter's letter, is that to pursue this holiness is not simply an individual affair, but it is a corporate affair. It it requires a community. In fact, God has established 
the community, which is the church, for your salvation to be played out for you, as Peter says, to grow in your salvation. He says that we're all stones that are being built into a new temple. Now, often when we think about our Christianity, we think of ourselves just as those stones. Well, I want to make sure my edges are all right, right angles, good corners, nice stone. We tend to focus on ourselves and how we're walking with God and our own spirituality. But really, if Peter is right, then what's an even more important question is what role as a stone we play in the temple being built. If God's building agenda, if his vision is for a people that accomplishes his purposes in the world, then the individual qualities of the stone are not nearly so important, and they're not irrelevant, but they're not as important as the role the stone plays in the building itself. So is your Christianity simply about being a nice stone? Or is it, being, is it about being an important part of the temple that is being built? That's the question at hand today. And that's the question that Peter's posing, or the challenge he's posing to the churches. Right? Persecution is coming. People are tempted to walk away. And Peter says, no, you have to remember what God's project is. And if you, you have to remember that to participate in that project, it is a group endeavor. So, he'll touch on three aspects of this. One is yearn for what is good. He'll tell them also to remember who you are. And third, to not forget your labor. We're going to look at yearning for what is good, remembering who you are, and not forgetting your labor. Look at verse 1 with me. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Interestingly, Peter begins uh, by exhorting them not to do something, but to do away with something. That to walk in faithfulness requires that there be a cleaning out project. That there are, um, there are things in the room that you don't want in the room, and they have to be moved out. For the last two months, Zach and I have been busy upstairs. Things have been thrown in the office haphazardly, and it became a ridiculous mess. And so finally this week, we took some time to clean the office, and suddenly it was like the cobwebs had gone away. We could focus. We could work. It did, wasn't a dread to walk into the room. The room had to be prepared so that it could actually be used for its purpose. Boys and girls, you know this. Your rooms become atrocious. They become so messy, it doesn't even look like anything but an animal lives there. And so you have to clean them up. And so you might think of what Peter is saying as... There, the, heart, the rooms of your heart need to be cleaned as well because in your heart, some of the things that exist there are not good. They are characteristic of your old self. They are envy and slander and malice. Now, why do such things exist in your heart? Well, because when we seek that which we want or that which we think we need, and we do so apart from God, we either devour one another or we devour God. We, we are consumers. We consume to be fed. Right? And if we're not being fed in the right way by God, then we will feed on one another. We become manipulators. We become gossips. Right? A little word here behind the back, criticizing someone or pointing out someone's failure to someone else makes us feel alive or good. And we think we feed ourselves when really we're stripped of actually... 
part of our faith, part of our humanity, part of what it means to participate in God's salvation and redemption. Manipulating is, uh, you know, is near and dear to our hearts. Uh, it's become a, more of an issue a little bit in our household, just more sophisticated, perhaps, not really more of an issue. So I what came downstairs the other week and ran into Molly in the kitchen, and she said, Dad, man, you're looking buff. Have you been working out? And that was such an odd thing for her to say. I thought, well, yeah, maybe. I don't know, but I, that's great. Um, and I'm still processing, like, why in the world? That's such an odd thing. But even as, you know, in the seconds that are taking me to process this and think about why she said that, it's immediately followed by a request. And what she was trying to do is to compliment me and make me feel good so that I would be disposed to grant the request that she was about to make to me. Right? It wasn't, now this is typical of all of us, I'm not picking on her per se, but it wasn't an act of love, it was an act of, I'm going to try to control you so you give me what I want. That's how we relate to God when we're trying to feed ourselves, it's how we relate to one another. I saw a friend recently who had injured me and... You know, it's one of those things where you think, I've forgiven this, it's done, we'll move on. But when I saw him, I was angry. And I thought, you know, I'm just not going to give you very much time. I'm not going to be vulnerable with you. And for two reasons. One, I'm going to protect myself. But two, I'm going, I'm going to punish you. Because you wounded me. Again, I'm not loving him. I'm consuming him. I'm going to make him pay. And for a pound of his flesh, I'm going to feel better. This is the malice and the envy and the deceit that exists in our hearts and within the church when we seek to meet our own needs and our own wants and desires and don't turn to God to be nourished in that way, which is why Peter turns immediately in verse 2 and 3 and writes, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter uses a, this, this image of a, as an infant is pursuing milk, right? It's, it's rooting at the breast to be fed. Do you root at the breast of God to be fed? Now, some of you may giggle, particularly young people. Right? You think that's a funny image. I think it's a stunning image. Because it's an image of your complete helplessness as an infant. It's an image of what you need to be nourished the most important thing, really the only thing that will feed you, and of the grace of God who provides it for us. It's a picture of the passion when an infant desires to be fed. They know where it's found and they toss their head and they pursue it with reckless abandon. Do you pursue being fed by God, being fed the pure spiritual milk of the Word with any kind of vigor in the way that you see an infant pursue milk? Sometimes we don't, and Peter knows this, because notice what he says at the end of verse 3. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter knows that you're not going to pursue the pure spiritual milk of the Word if you don't actually believe that that is good. Right? Like a mother who eats something that changes the milk, and an infant gets a taste of it and says, I don't, I don't care for that, and pulls away. If you don't believe that what the Lord offers is good, you pull away. And look for nourishment somewhere else. And we find ourselves right back at the malice and the envy and the slander that we were just at. When we evaluate whether or not we've tasted that the Lord is good, 
we have to think in two ways. One is, has the Lord not met you? Has He not, in great kindness and compassion, rescued you out of darkness and transferred you to light? Has He not made you part of His precious and chosen people? Has He not met you in quiet times in which you seek His face and the Spirit comes upon you and you know that there's nothing more beautiful or rich than the divine? Or has He not met you as you've sought to clothe the naked and feed the hungry? Perhaps as you've gone to India. What are those places in which God has met you and you know at those moments that there's nothing greater than that taste of the divine? And you know that He's good. And so on the one hand, we have to remember that God is good and that we have tasted that He's good. But that is a reminding of our hearts. But secondly, we always have to be also thinking about what is good. When we think of good, we often think, well, is God doing for me what I want Him to do? There's good in the sense of taste. If we think about it still in this metaphor of food, there's good in the sense of tasty and there's good in the sense of nourishment. I can go through the fast food line at Chick-fil-A or the drive-thru and eat that and I say, that's really good. By which I really mean that's very tasty. It's not very good for me. Or I can go and have a real meal that's more balanced and not, uh, doesn't have 50 million milligrams of salt. right? And that's going to be a lot better for me. And when I say that's good, it may not be as tasty, but it's more nourishing. And the degree to which I live simply for that which is tasty is the degree to which I confuse God's goodness and what is good for me simply for what titillates my pleasures. If I define goodness by God's character and me being made holy, then that redefines truly what I pursue and understand to be good in my life. And that we taste and know that the Lord is good, and it's that that should make us long to be nourished with the pure spiritual milk of the Word. So Peter begins by saying, yearn for what is good. Root like an infant, for that which you need the most. The word itself. He goes on from there and says, part of your challenge, churches, is also to remember who you are. In verse 4, he tells them that they're chosen and precious in the sight of God. What an incredible privilege. In verse 5, he calls them a royal priesthood. Now, we read something like that. We don't really live in a culture with a priesthood. We don't live in a culture with royalty, so that's rather foreign to us. But if you're living in the ancient world, and particularly if you have any connection to understanding the story of Israel, and you're called royal, you know that royalty is dictated by birth. And there's only one royal family. In the entire nation of Israel, only one family gets to be called royal. Priesthood is also dictated by birth. And there are more included in terms of a clan, but it's still an incredible privilege. And most everyone else is simply peasant. Remember in the ancient world, there's no middle class. You're either part of this very small minority that has received their position by birth, or you're a peasant trying to figure out how to make it through each day, living a subsistent life with your one set of clothes and making sure that you have enough food for that day. And it's to this group of people that have gathered in the church that Peter writes, remember who you are. 
You are royal and you are a priesthood. The two greatest honors that can be bestowed upon a people have been bestowed upon you in the risen Christ. In other words, God has not spared anything in terms of establishing you with the greatest honor that you could be bestowed with. We say, well, I don't feel royal or I don't feel like priesthood. Things aren't happening in my life the way I want them to be. But again, you're looking from your vantage point. Through your lens, you're deciding what should be happening and establishing disappointment based on the goodness that you want. But God has spared nothing. He's not spared his son, nor is he spared calling you both royal and priesthood. And it is this royal priesthood that is being built into a house. Why? To offer spiritual sacrifices to Christ, to proclaim his excellencies to the Gentiles. You're called uh, to a mission that cannot be engaged in simply individualistically. Peter's here is drawing on a corporate metaphor that you are not a single stone, but because the cornerstone is established by Christ and out from that cornerstone is being built a new temple for the praise and worship of God, which the church carries out its business, you are a stone in that church. You're a stone in that building. And to the degree that you overemphasize your own individuality or your own pursuit of your holiness and being a really nice stone, you neglect that we're called together to do something bigger than what any of us could accomplish individually. I played uh, intramural basketball in college, and uh, it's fun. we were kind of a Christian team, but there was this guy who, he, if you gave him the ball, he was good to go. And he would dribble around, you know, just around and around until he could take a shot. Or he would just take a shot immediately. And the really funny part is, you know, he would just, he was what we'd call a ball hog. But the funny part was when he finally made the shot, he'd he'd back up and like point to you. Like, I was totally dependent on you. Thanks for passing it. And everybody's like, there's nobody on this team but you. I don't know what you're trying to communicate. Right? And that's what the team existed for. The, the other four players on the team existed to facilitate him making a shot, right? And then pointing at us as if he's a benevolent Michael Jordan, giving us semi-credit for having helped him score a point. All right, it's kind of absurd, but we see that sometimes in the church. Or, and we may not be that um, ridiculous about it, right? But that we kind of see the church as the church exists to help me make the shot. Right? Really what I'm intent about is my own spirituality and feeling that I'm close to God and where the church facilitates that, then they're playing their role. And I don't really need it for anything else. It's really what Peter's describing is you exist to make the church what it should be. To facilitate that together uh, we would make the shot in that sense. What we dream about, who we are and what we're becoming and striving for, it, it requires all of us. And some of you have been a lot here a long time. Some of you precede me. Some of you have been here a short time, but in the last, you know, over 10 years, we've, we've grown slowly and steadily. And we, we've taken on big projects, like engaging things in India and seeking to, seeking to help those who are really in need in our community through things like the Benevolence Fund. And all of these goals and desires are bigger than we could possibly undertake individually. individually. Raising $90,000 to try to help acquire an orphanage for children coming out of the deep forest in India, none of us could accomplish that by ourselves. 
But we labor toward that together, that we would be a temple that actually proclaims the excellencies of Christ. What do you dream about? Not for you and your own spirituality, but for us as a community. I'd like, what if we opened a home that helps people get back on their feet? Right? When they're in some kind of, just life becomes a mess, they need to be retrained, they need a place that they can live. What would it look like if we opened a restaurant that was a 501c3 and all the profits from that restaurant not only went to things like projects in India and was a place for people to be trained in basic work. What would it look like if, you know, in 10 years, we're not only in India, but we're in numerous countries participating with projects and seeing the gospel go forward and the wounds of the poor bound up. These are just things I dream about. And my dreams aren't the dreams that will dictate the direction of the church. What do you desire for this community? What do you feel like we are called together as we're built into a spiritual temple to proclaim the excellencies of Christ? How is that going to play out for us? It's a question we can only dream about and answer together. But we have to be ripped out of our individualism, ripped out of our selfishness if we're actually going to engage those kinds of affairs together, which is what Peter is calling the church to. Only together can we accomplish God's calling. Now, there's some fear in that, to be sure. Like, if you think about what does it actually mean to, to give that kind of time and energy and money to a project like that or to anything of that nature, it's huge. And so part of us, I think, always thinks, well, what if we are left empty-handed at the end of the day? Right? Isn't there always a notion, I really want to throw in with Christ. But what if I'm disappointed? What if he just doesn't kind of show up? What if it doesn't work out the way that I hope it will? Will I be, dis- will I be foolish? Will I be shamed? Will I regret the decisions that I've made? Peter knows the heart of his churches to whom he writes. Because in verse 6, extolling the cornerstone which is Jesus, the rock on which we are built, He writes that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The day of judgment, every other road that one could take will lead to a place of shame and disappointment. And there's only one, because it is found in him, that does not terminate in shame. That at the end you will not be put to shame because Christ will be faithful to the promises he has made to you. And it's for those promises that we do not forget the labor to which we're called. It's too easy to become complacent. It's too easy as the world becomes dangerous or, or we just get distracted that we would move away from our calling. But in verse 9, Peter reminds the churches that they're called out of darkness into his light. In verse 10, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You have received mercy, and this mercy is for what? That you would conduct yourselves in a way that actually speaks of the love and mercy of Christ to the Gentiles around you. No, not that they would understand what you're doing, but that they would marvel. And even as they might seek to slander you, they will pause for the good that you are actually doing. We engage in this. We we embrace it when we understand truly that we have received mercy. Do you believe? What kind of mercy have you received? You know... I think we tend to think of ourselves as pretty great people. 
think you kind of everyone in this room is always evaluating themselves. We're always justifying our existence. We're always thinking, what have I done that makes my life significant? And so you weigh it and you say, well, I've been responsible or I've worked hard or I've loved my wife or husband or my children well in this fashion. And you think, I'm pretty good. And constantly you evaluate your own significance based on what you've accomplished and, what, and through, through your own lens. That's simply behaviorism. Holiness, and this is one of the most, probably most important factors of First Peter, is holiness is not simply obedience. Holiness is love. It's obedience born out of love. Look, I can be obedient. I not, you know, we call it, if someone is simply obedient, we call this behaviorism. You can train anybody to do just about anything. I can train my kids through discipline to act in a certain way. That doesn't mean that they love me or love God. You can train people going through a program to act in a certain way. For example, at Harvard Business School, they train the students that they should not cheat or steal. Is that because they love God? No, it's because they believe that if you cheat or steal, you'll eventually get caught and you'll ultimately make less money. So in other words, they're advocating a behavior of righteousness that is actually born out of greed. Don't cheat or steal because that's the way you're going to make the most money over a lifetime. And so often you and I, we've settled for this notion of behaviorism, which doesn't actually bring us closer to God. It's not obedience out of love. It's simply obedience to justify ourselves, out of which we think we haven't really received that much mercy. And you forget that your hearts are desperately wicked. They're filled with malice and envy and slander. And most of what you've learned, simply because you've grown up in a Judeo-Christian culture that has certain values that make society run relatively smoothly, you excuse or equate your behaviorism with righteousness. And as a result, you think, ah, I don't need that much mercy, certainly not as much mercy as those other people. Because all of your good decisions have been born out of love of God, love of others, and that because of your desire to identify with the sufferings of Christ and sacrifice those rights and privileges which you think you have? Of course not. You've been trained to act in a certain way because you've grown up in that culture. And if you believe the biblical story rather than the story you would tell yourself, then you understand that you have a lot of wickedness and a lot of selfishness. And the mercy that Peter describes is mercy indeed because you did not deserve it and you are not worthy of it. But it's when understanding that that's the level of mercy you've received. My goodness, how could your heart not melt? To be loved to that extent. To be shown such kindness despite you being anything but kind. And it's that that we, we embrace our labor. Yes, let us go forth amongst the Gentiles. Yes, let us do good in the name of Christ. Let us participate in anything that proclaims the excellencies of the risen Lord. Peter says you can't do it as a stone. You must understand that you are a temple. There is a good picture of this as uh, the kids and I watched the Jungle Book this week, which is really fun if you haven't seen it. The, the, uh, the computer-generated images are unbelievable. And uh, the, the best part, you, just, you have to look forward to it, is the voice of King Louis as Christopher Walken, which is... It's just an outstanding fit. Uh, and Bill Murray is the voice of Baloo. So it's this wonderful retelling of the story of uh, the Jungle Book with an actual human being and these com- uh, computer-generated figures. 
The story, which you probably are somewhat familiar with, at least somewhere in distant memory if you've not seen the movie, is that Mowgli, uh, a little boy, uh, loses his father in the jungle and is raised by a pack of wolves. And he's raised according to the code of the wolves. To be part of a pack is to live according to the law of the jungle, and the pack looks out for the pack. A wolf doesn't exist for the wolf itself. And so the pack is committed to Mowgli as one of its as one of its wolves. It sees Mowgli as kind of one of theirs. Well, of course, the, the person who uh, is um, predatorially wandering around the jungle and devouring whomever he wills is Shere Khan, who is the tiger and who killed Mowgli's father. And Shere Khan eventually comes and wants to devour Mowgli, but the pack defends him and sends him away. But Shere Khan says, uh, eventually I'm coming. And you better provide the boy. Well, this causes a crisis of identity in the wolf pack. Do we sacrifice the, the safety of everyone in the pack for Mowgli? Or do we do something with Mowgli to protect ourselves? And so often when we come under danger or feel threatened in some way, that we have that fight or flight response. And so the wolf pack uh, decides essentially to, to flee. We're going to send Mowgli back to the man village. And so at this point, they've decided to abandon their law, their code. No longer do they defend uh, the, all the members of the pack. Now they're choosing to sacrifice a member of the pack for their own safety. And so Mowgli is sent away. Inevitably, of course, Mowgli um, uh, moves towards the man village and encounters all the dangers that face him. And while he's moved on, Shere Khan comes to collect Mowgli. Mowgli's not there, so he kills Mowgli's wolf dad, right? And so eventually Mowgli hears of it. He says, well, I'm going to return in vengeance. I'm going to take down Shere Khan for what he's done to my father. So the pack made a decision that thought would keep it safe. But by giving up the law, they weren't safe at all. Shere Khan was no respecter of that decision. So Mowgli comes back, and he comes back with the red flower, which is fire, right? The one thing that the animals, that sets a man apart from the animals and the animals greatly fear. And so he's set up to face off against Shere Khan, but he recognizes that as he and Shere Khan are facing off and he holds the red flower, that all of the other jungle animals are afraid of him because of the destruction that fire uh, wreaks. And in fact, he's set most of the jungle on fire at this point, so it's not invalid that they're worried about this. And so they look at Mowgli like, we're not going, you know, you're not one of us anymore because you wield the flame. So Mowgli has this one weapon, which is fire, and is facing Shere Khan, and must decide to face Shere Khan with fire or to do something that will, will allow him to re-identify with the, the jungle animals in the wolf pack. And so he throws the fire into the water, and it, it's put out, and Shere Khan says, well, that was stupid. That was your only weapon. And yet, as he does that, right, he's chosen uh, to be part of the community. He's chosen... He might have had his best chance individually with the fire to face Shere Khan, but he's chosen to give that up so that he would be re, um, rejoined with the community. And in fact, that was his best move because only the community together can defeat Shere Khan. And as Mowgli makes that decision, the community is encouraged. They take courage from his act. They take courage from his fearlessness. And then it takes everybody. It takes the bear. It takes the wolves. It takes the panther. And it takes Mowgli to defeat Shere Khan, something that they only could have done when they were brought together. This, this is what 
it's a beautiful image for what Peter is challenging the churches with. They live in a place where their enemy and all the other affairs of the world are predatorial. And they seek to devour these churches. And there's great temptation to separate, to preserve an illusion of safety or protection and separate from the church. And Peter says, no, you have to understand that your safety, your, in fact, your very calling exists in community. And only to the degree that you are bound up and committed to that community will you actually see your salvation grow. Will you actually see the work of God played out in this world? Will you actually accomplish that which is too large for you to accomplish? Our God exists in community and he has called us to labor in community. Where do you meet your community? Here, of course, Sunday school, midweek, a side of service. Let this be a call to all of us to ask, to what degree is my Christianity all about my individual endeavor? And to what degree am I called to actually be a stone and part of a building that God is building and that I am not? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have uh, chosen us, that you have made us precious in your sight, that you have bestowed great mercy and love upon us, that you have made us a royal priesthood. Would you help us uh, not to be selfish and arrogant and to, uh, to drink deeply from the well of individualism and narcissism and to think, oh, if only I practice my Christianity well in my own eyes and I'm fine. Would you challenge us? Would you call us uh, and make us the people you've called us to be? Would you uh, develop and build bonds that are strong and deep in our midst? in which we labor on behalf of one another, in which we encourage one another in that which you have called us. And as a result, may we see more and more praise and honor and proclamation of excellencies go to Jesus than ever would uh, for our selfish uh, expression of our faith. We ask for your help in this, strength and courage. In Christ's name, amen.